0: Hey gang, how we doing? Good? Welcome everybody. It is good to see you this morning, as Pastor Jeff already said. If you're visiting with us today, we are especially glad to have you and hope you feel welcome here. Uh, Look at that; they're chomping at the bit. Kids, you guys are dismissed. So preschool up to fifth grade, we have a classroom for your kids, which they're welcome to go to or they can stay here uh, with us. God bless them. And uh, if you're visiting today and you want to head back there with your kids, to check it out. You are welcome to do that. And then youth group. I don't know if we have any youth group today. But anyway, if you're in the youth group and you want to go out with Pastor Chris, you can do that. And everybody else, uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10 this morning. And if you need a Bible, we have Bibles for you. So you can just raise your hands and we'll bring one to you that you can use. Uh, you can certainly use a, a Bible on your phone if you prefer that. Um, any version of the Bible is a good version of the Bible to use. Amen? So... Um, Boy, rough week, of course, with the, uh, the fires uh, over there in Hawaii. And uh, I know Samaritan's Purse, uh, I got a notification. They're there. They're on the ground. They're doing ministry and relief work there. So if anyone's interested in, in how you can support the efforts out there, you can just go directly to Samaritan's Purse. Uh, I know they're setting up a big operation over there to, uh, to help out. So we want to keep them, of course, uh, in our prayers. Uh, this week. but uh, great text today, important text today for us, I think, as we continue uh, looking through here uh, the Gospel of Mark. I will before we start say uh, that I'm excited, uh, you know as Pastor Jeff mentioned, we're headed into a new season of ministry here for the fall. And so we'll have a whole new um, kind of series of groups that we're going to offer. We've got some exciting things happening on Wednesday nights and then uh, some neat things happening for the men and the women. So we'll have more information um, on how you can get involved in some of that stuff. Most of it gets kind of cooking as we get into September, that second week, that third week of September, as we get things going. And then we'll go through and try to break just before Thanksgiving, probably take uh, December off since it's always such a busy time, uh, and then start back up with a new session of groups even in the winter time, that'll head all the way through the spring. So if you're interested in more kind of midweek opportunities, uh, that's where you'll find those. So stay tuned in the coming, uh, coming weeks, as he said, uh, for details on that. So um, anyway, let's pray and just let's ask the Lord to continue to bless uh, as we go through uh, his word today. So Father, we thank you so much for that time of worship, Lord. What a blessing that it was for each one of us, Lord, as, uh, as we minister unto you. Lord, with our our worship and our praise of you. And Father, we pray uh, even now with our hearts prepared, Lord, that you would now minister to us, Lord, through your word. Lord, speak to us, we pray, through your spirit. We pray that he would be our teacher this morning, Lord. uh, And we pray that, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what he would say to your church today, Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. So as I said, Mark chapter 10. And we're going to pick up right where we left off last time. We're following Jesus really on his final journey to Jerusalem, his appointment, of course, with the cross. And we saw that he's making his way with the disciples down south from the Galilee. He kind of took this strange little little detour kind of to the east around Samaria and ended up in the region of what's called Perea, right, which is where last time we saw that the disciples had gotten themselves, you remember, into a bit of trouble. Remember, they tried to keep this group of young children from coming to Jesus to receive a blessing from Jesus. And it earned the disciples a rebuke from Jesus and then a lesson from him about what it means to be a true kingdom kid, and that it's exactly these little ones, right? The lesser ones, those who society tends to undervalue, those are the ones who are of supreme value in the kingdom of God. And in fact, we saw that the kingdom of God, Jesus said, belongs to these kinds of people, right? Those kinds of people that were represented there by those young children, people who Simply receive the kingdom as the free gift that it's intended to be, and don't you know, don't try to, uh, to work or to earn the kingdom um, for themselves. So such a great and I think, an encouraging word from Jesus to every one of us, really, parents, but all of us as followers of Him, not simply in how it is that we are to enter the kingdom, but really now in, in just how we then are to walk by God's grace in the kingdom each and every day after that. And so now this morning, as Jesus continues on with this journey, we're gonna see yet another important and, uh, and I suspect probably a familiar encounter that's recorded for us here in Mark's Gospel. And that encounter is really gonna become for us kind of a backdrop for a very important teaching on a very important subject, And that's the subject of true kingdom riches. So look what we read now, picking up in verse 17, right, of Mark chapter 10. It says, now, as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, if this is sounding a little bit familiar, it probably should, because this is This encounter is one of those that's recorded for us in all three of what we call the synoptic gospels, right? Matthew and in Luke, and of course, right here in Mark. It's this familiar story of this familiar man, but it's really only as we kind of piece together some of the details from all three accounts that we really get a fuller picture of this person. Now, all three of the accounts are going to tell us that this man is rich, Now, Matthew's account includes the fact that he is young, and it's Luke who adds for us that he is also a ruler, right? Or a word specifically that that would speak to the fact that he was a leader or a ruler, if you will, somewhere within that spiritual setting of Judaism. So you put all those pieces together, and this becomes the very familiar story. And some of your Bibles probably have it as the heading, but it's the story of the rich young ruler. And as we said when we started, it's not only a very familiar story, but it's also a very, very important story, right? In fact, the the fact that it's told in all three of the synoptic gospels, I think, highlights for us how important it is that we know what Jesus is about to teach us, which is really the mind and the heart of God on the important subject of riches and wealth. And I think especially this message is so relevant to each one of us because of this incredibly affluent culture that we all find ourselves living in. We live in a culture where both the richest man in the world, right, currently Elon Musk, as well as reportedly the youngest billionaire in the world, who is apparently Kylie Jenner, right, of the Kardashians fame, both of these people, like these, are role models for us as a society, right? And so many people in our culture are just conditioned, right, just simply to love money. And it's that love that, we, that we'll see today can surely have some very serious and some very eternal consequences. But let's not get ahead of ourselves because look back here at this verse, this description that we've put together of this man because this guy, he's got it all, right? He is young, he is wealthy, and he has power, right? He has all the things that the world tells us are going to satisfy us in life. And yet the first thing we see here is that it simply doesn't satisfy him. So much so, we get this sense that there's this urgency with him, right? Here It says he comes running up to Jesus, right? So you just kind of picture it in your minds, right? Or, or you look at the screen, right? But he runs up to Jesus and he kneels down in front of him right in the path of where Jesus was walking down the road. Because this man has this burning question in his heart and he knows that Jesus has the answer. And again, I think what that tells us is that not only is he rich, not only is he young, not only is he a ruler, but he's also wise. Because he has this very important question on his mind. He has a spiritual question on his mind. And so he brings this spiritual question to the, the highest place you can ever bring a spiritual question, and that's to Jesus himself, right? And it's a good thing because this was a question of life and death, right? Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Right, that's a heavy question, right? So again, he's not only young, he's not only rich, he's not only powerful, he's not only wise, but he is thoughtful, And so he brings this very thoughtful, this eternal question, right? What must I do? He's got all of these things. He has got it made. He doesn't have, I bet this guy doesn't have half the worries that 95% of us in this room have. Right, as we kind of trudge our way through life, just trying to make ends meet. But everything probably for him has been covered. He's got security from one end of his life to the other. There's probably nothing he can't afford to buy. There's nothing he could possibly want. And yet he knows that there is something missing. And I, what I think is so intriguing about this guy is that this isn't usually the kind of person who has great questions in life, we see this kind of person as the kind of person that has all the answers to the questions in life. And yet here he is, he's thinking about eternal life. He's thinking about eternity. He's thinking about life and he's thinking about death and he's thinking about what happens after death. Because I think at some point there's a realization on some level he says, wait a second, right i'm rich i'm young i'm a ruler i've got it made in terms of this life but i know that death comes to all of us and what i don't know is what i have to do to secure myself the same kind of a wonderful position in the life to come right life on the other side of the grave and really this is a remarkable thing because I just have to suspect that it's one of the things that the angels marvel about in heaven is the the utter absence of thought. And I'm talking about real soul-searching kind of thought that most people give to eternity. Most people within our culture don't give it a second thought, right? I mean, how many people really stop at some moment in time For even just five minutes in their life, and really consider and ask these hard questions how in the world do I prepare myself for this thing called death? When it comes knocking on my door, which we all know that it will, but how do I prepare myself for eternity that that death is gonna usher me into? So few people really give it the consideration that it's due. And so again, I think we have to give this man some credit. He is really pretty remarkable, and especially because he is asking these questions and thinking these thoughts, not in his old age, but he's doing it when he's young, right? And I think that's even more remarkable still. So this guy really is the total package. He is every Jewish mother's dream pick, right, for her daughter. And yet notice this, right? This successful man has one great failure in his life. And it's the very same failure that most people, I would suspect the majority of people on the planet, it's the same failure that they have in their lives. And notice, just by the question he asks Jesus, it implies that he is fully convinced, again, as most people are, he is fully convinced that eternal life is something you obtain by doing, right? That a person ends up in heaven one day on the basis of some amount of human effort or on the basis of some amount of religious works that they are going to do, or maybe just on some amount of doing more good in the course of my life than the bad things that I've done in the course of my life, right? But it doesn't work that way, does it? And anyone who believes that they can get to heaven just by human effort or simply by being a good person, that person has a very superficial knowledge and a very superficial understanding of two things. First of all, the seriousness of their own sin. And second of all, the holiness of God. You know, for me to think that I can undo the damage... That my sin alone has done in God's world and in God's universe and to God's people, that I can undo that by some human effort or something that I might do. What that really is, is it's an insult to God. You know, the, the Bible's very clear. It says in Isaiah 64 that we have all become like one who is unclean, and all all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, right? Or some translations say they're like a filthy rag, right? It's like trying to put on some dirty, stinky, you know, worn clothes to cover over our dirty, stinking body, right? Every single one of us, no matter how good we may be, what the Bible says, it says in Romans 3 that there is no one righteous, not even one. Because every sin that you've committed, every sin that I've ever committed, we have committed in God's living room, right? The the, the sins that we've committed against other human beings, they're not simply sins that were committed against other people, but when we committed those, we were really committing them against God himself. We committed them in the the context of his creation and his world. We violated his laws. We violated his his rules, and we rebelled really against his goodness. Our, our sin is so serious. When we start to frame it, right, and we look at it and we compare it to the true holiness of God, that's why it's only the death of God's sinless son on the cross. That's the only acceptable payment that could provide us with the forgiveness of those sins. That's what provides us With our salvation. Because without it, the wrath of God, the Bible said, just kind of hangs over my sin. It's like an unpaid debt. It just hangs over my sin and hangs over me until I've made Jesus my Savior. And it's only that perfect sacrifice of Jesus, right, that satisfies that righteous wrath, right? That right on, perfectly legitimate holy wrath of a holy God towards sin, that's the only way it can be removed. And yet somehow most people think that there's something we can do ourselves to earn our forgiveness. That's the majority view in this world. And it's ingrained in us. It's part of our very fallen nature. And it's also perpetuated, isn't it, by false religious systems everywhere. And what people want What people want in order to get out from under it, and what we're going to see this man wanted, and Jesus knew it, but what people want as an answer to the problem of their sin, they want a list, right? Just give me a list. Give me a list of the, tell me what the five things are, tell me what the 30 things are that I have to do, and if I can just knock those things out before I die, that I'll be assured that I'm going to have everlasting life that I can be assured that I'll be in heaven one day. That's what people are looking for because people just simply want to paint by numbers. And here's the irony. In a sense, there is a list. There is a list of things that we can do to guarantee that we will go to heaven. But the point is, it's not 30 items. It's not even five items. How many items is it? It's one item. And we're going to see, of course, in our text, salvation is a one-item list. And what we're going to see is that for this man, that one thing was too much to ask. But before we get there, watch what Jesus does next, really just to bring this guy to this list. He had asked, good teacher, what shall I do? And look at verse 18, Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. Now, this is kind of a puzzling statement, right? Some people wonder why Jesus gives this almost cryptic kind of a response, almost like Jesus is saying that he isn't God. And yet, if we understand it in the cultural context of the Jews of that day, what we learn is that Jesus was actually saying just the opposite. He is affirming his deity, and here's why. What this young man just did here was an amazing thing because for him to come up here and say, you know, call Jesus good teacher because no rabbi would have ever been referred to as good rabbi, right? You, you didn't go up and you say, oh, hello, good rabbi Hillel or, you know, good rabbi Shimei, right? The term good was always reserved for God alone. And this young man, as a ruler of some sort, as a leader of some sort within Judaism, he himself would absolutely have known the ground rules. And Jesus knew that he knew exactly what it was that he was saying. And Jesus knew exactly what it was he was saying in his response. Because in challenging the man, Jesus isn't denying the fact that he's God. He didn't say, you know, hey, don't call me good. I'm not God. I'm just a man. What he did say is, why do you call me good when there's no one who's good but God? Right? Because it could only be because on some level you believe that I am God. And what Jesus is doing is he's really preparing this young man for the conversation that's going to follow. He's saying, look, you come to me and you ascribe this title to me that indicates that you believe that the answer that I'm about to give you is divine. Now, what I want to ask you is, are you still going to believe that after I give you the answer that you're not expecting? He's not denying that he's God. He's kind of just challenging How much authority is this young man going to really give his answer when it doesn't turn out at all the way he wants? And so now with that kind of established, watch the way Jesus, right, the master teacher. Now Jesus, the one who knows our own hearts better than we know our hearts. Watch the way he starts to guide this remarkable young man to the most important truth and the reality that he would ever hear. So the man had asked, what should I do? And here's Jesus' answer in verse 19. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And this guy's thinking, yes, here's the list. Right? This is the list that this guy wanted. Now, the list for you probably should sound a little bit familiar. Because what did Jesus just do? Well, he simply just quoted from the Ten Commandments at least half of them, because what Jesus sort of did here is he started kind of in the middle of the Ten Commandments in that all the six commandments that Jesus just quoted are found on the second tablet of the two tablets that God inscribed of the Ten Commandments that he gave to Moses. Understand the first tablet had the commandments that all had to do with man's relationship with God himself. Right? It was the vertical relationship with God. Now, the second tablet of the law of Moses had all the commandments that had to do with man's relationship with his fellow man. Right, The horizontal commandments. So, by the way, you've got the vertical commandments and you've got the horizontal commandments. And they make a cross because all the law was fulfilled in Jesus. But here, right, Jesus just kind of throws this guy, it's kind of like a softball pitch, right? He says, okay, let's start this off. Let's see how well you've been performing in your relationship with other people. And so the man answered Jesus next in verse 20, and I think he gave Jesus exactly the answer Jesus knew he would give. It says, he answered and said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Right. Hey, from the time I left my youth, right, and became an adult in the Jewish culture, that would have been at the age of twelve, at his bar mitzvah. But he's saying from that time I have kept all of those commandments, and that seems like kind of a tall order. And yet, when you look at the list, it is at least possible. Right? He hadn't killed anyone. He hadn't stolen anything, he hadn't taken another man's wife, he hadn't lied, he hadn't cheated, and he had always respected his parents. Now, we might not think this is likely, but we have to say it is at least possible. And also we see Jesus just doesn't contest the statement. He doesn't question the guy like, really? You know, he doesn't do that. So again, this is truly amazing. Because it's not just that this guy is rich and that he's young and that he's powerful and that he's wise and that he's thoughtful, but he's also moral, right? And he is precisely the kind of person that everyone here in the United States, virtually everyone who is ignorant of what the Bible actually teaches, they would look at this man and they would say, this guy is a shoe in for heaven. What is he even worrying about? And they just assume that Jesus would say, hey, you know what? You're doing great. I mean, if you can't make it in, who can make it in, right? But instead, Jesus is going to say something very different next. Now that Jesus has really set the stage for the truth, now watch the way Jesus hits this guy with the truth that Jesus knows is at the heart of the issue for this man. It says in verse 21, Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. And then we read in verse 22, But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So as remarkable as this young man is, Jesus just showed him, right, that though he may have succeeded in the second half of the law, he had failed in his heart in the first half of the law. In fact, he had failed in the very first commandment in the law, which is what? You shall have no other gods before me. Because Jesus just very lovingly put his finger on the one great thing in this man's life that he loved more than he loved God, right? He recognized that this young man's love for riches was really the master passion of his life. And Jesus knew that he would have to overcome that misplaced master passion in order now for Jesus to become the master passion of his life and to truly be able to follow him. In fact, if you write in your Bible, I want you to look at, I want you to make note of, I want you to just circle those little three words at the end of verse 21 because they most simply answer the question that the man had asked in verse 17. He said, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Follow Jesus. That's the one item on the list. So this is a simple answer, right, to a thoughtful, eternal question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Follow Jesus, We need to become a follower of Jesus now in this life in order to be able to follow him into that life to come. And Jesus recognized, right, in in the uniqueness of this man's life, he recognized that his wealth was going to be just an insurmountable obstacle in and of itself for him to ever really come to know God and to follow him in a saving way. And so everything, all that stuff, just had to be taken out of the equation completely. Now, before we go too much further, I need to make this point, and we're going to see it more as we go on. But what Jesus is saying here to this man does not apply to everyone who wants to follow him, right? This encounter does not have a a universal application. There are many rich people that Jesus ran into who did follow after him, right? Many rich people who have wealth and that wealth doesn't become an obstacle to them coming to know God and, and walking with God and living for God. But Jesus recognized that this was going to be a real problem for this young man personally and specifically. I want you to notice the way, look in verse 21. I want you to notice the way that the Holy Spirit specifically emphasizes the uniqueness of the answer that Jesus gives. It says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him, and said to him, right? We see this repetition of that word him, and no doubt by this point there was a crowd Certainly that had assembled and was watching this whole exchange. And notice Jesus doesn't say to the crowd, you all need to sell everything. But he looks at this man and he says to him personally, he says, you need to sell everything. And he says it because he loves him. And that detail that Jesus loves him, that's an interesting detail that's only recorded for us here in Mark's gospel. And why is that? Well, once again, I think the answer is Peter, who we've talked about. Peter was probably the the one who provided to Mark any of the eyewitness testimony for, for Mark's gospel account. And I think that this moment really impacted Peter probably for years to come. Right, Peter's there, right? He sees this, and Peter could see in this moment that there was something very special happening here between Jesus and this young man. And of course, we know that Jesus loves everybody, right? But in this moment, there was something individual and something very personal that was happening here. As we said, as Jesus just put his finger lovingly right on the heart of this man's issue, He identified, because he loved this man, he loved him enough to identify the one single thing that he knew was standing in the way of him really following after him. And for him, as we said, it was his great wealth. But for you, it might be something else entirely. For some, it's ambition. For some, it's self-sufficiency. For others... It may be some specific sin or some particular relationship that you don't want to walk away from. And you're effectively placing that thing ahead of Jesus. Whatever it is in your life, you can be sure that you probably already know what it is. Because I bet that Jesus has already lovingly put his holy finger right on that issue through the conviction of his Holy Spirit. You know what it is. And he's calling you and he's calling me to get that thing out of our life, right? Remove that obstacle from our life and just demonstrate repentance around that thing, right? To change the way we look at that thing, we, to turn from that thing in our life, around that issue at whatever cost there is to our life so that we can be freed up to follow him. You know, Jesus wasn't being somehow especially hard on this man. He was asking of this man the very same thing that he's asking of every person in this world and of every person in this room here together this morning. He's asking for our repentance. He's asking us to turn from our sin and to turn to him. He's asking for our hearts and he's asking to be the master passion of our hearts. And please, if you're here this morning, don't make the same mistake that this young, rich, powerful, thoughtful, moral man made because he was unwilling to do in his heart what he knew what needed to be done. And it says he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. He knew exactly what Jesus was asking of him, but he was absolutely unwilling to do it, which simply proves what? That Jesus was right Right? This man did love his riches more than he loved God. Right? And at this moment, he loved his riches even more than he loved the idea of eternal life. And here's what I think is especially interesting about this. As we read on, what we're going to see is that as this man turns on his heels and starts to walk away, notice that Jesus doesn't go running after him. He's not chasing this guy down the road saying, wait a minute, hold on a second, you know, yeah, I try that on everybody, but it usually doesn't work. So here's plan B, right? We have a wonderful plan for your life. And if you, you know, he doesn't do that at all. He absolutely is unflinching and unapologetic in the way he's calling for this young man to simply repent. And he is unflinching and he is unapologetic as he calls us to do the same thing. As he calls us to turn away from whatever it is that's keeping us from him and simply put our faith in him, even though he knows that there will be some cost to our flesh associated with it. So this is a simple, but it's a costly answer. And that's to follow Jesus. But Jesus asks it of a, Asks it of us because he knows, he knows in the sight of heaven what we so often forget on earth. And that is that no sin is worth missing eternity in heaven over. There is no sin that you're involved in right now that is worth your eternal destiny. Whatever you think it's going to cost you right now to turn from it. You know, some people have pointed out that this is the only instance in the Bible where we see a man come and kneel at the feet of Jesus and then leave worse off than he was when he came. And in a sense, we could say that that's that's true, but we don't really know the end of his story, right? We don't know that this wasn't exactly what he needed to hear from Jesus. We don't know that he didn't eventually do what Jesus just told him to do. And we don't know that we won't see this man in heaven one day. We hope so. But what we do know is he was in a particularly bad position. The deck was stacked against this man to begin with. Because look what Jesus says in response to the way the man responds. It says in verse 23 that then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus is kind of recognizing aloud, right, for the benefit of yet another important teaching moment for his disciples. Right, he wants the disciples to learn from what they had just witnessed happen with this rich young ruler. And what he wants to teach them and to teach us is really the peril of riches, Right, the danger of riches. Right? And, and I don't know how you read it, but when I read what Jesus just said there, I, I read it with almost a sigh as Jesus says it. Because Jesus knows that riches really do. They seem to fix a person's heart on this world and on this life in a way that those who don't have riches don't have to really deal with. Right? Riches take a person's eyes off of eternity, which is why we see Jesus and we see the Bible address this issue over and over and over again. Here's a fun fact for all the engineers and the analysts in the room this morning. Did you know that throughout the scripture, there are 490 verses that deal directly with with faith? There are 500 or more that deal with prayer and 2,000 verses that deal with money. 288 verses in the Gospels alone, that's one in every 10 verses that concern money. The Bible contains more verses dealing with our use and our handling of money than it does concerning prayer and faith combined. And it's not because God needs your money. It's not because God's trying to get you to give more to the church, although you should be giving to the church, but That's not why he talks about money. He talks about money because it can be such a serious, serious stumbling block, both in the present and as it regards eternity. I mean, here's this young man, right? We've established the fact that he's rich. He walks away from Jesus, and all he can think about is what it is he's going to have to give up. He has lost any sense of proportion. He's completely forgotten about what it is that he'll gain to follow Jesus. In his own words, he knows that what he's about to gain is what? It's everlasting life. How much value are any riches even one second after you're dead? And yet people so desperately are trying to hold on to them all their life until that very moment that I die and then my death separates me from all of it. And at that moment, I've not only lost all of my riches, but I have now gone into eternity facing a horrible eternity of judgment because I tried to hold on something that I was supposed to have left at death's door. Right, you've probably heard it said that you've never seen a hearse pull in a U-Haul. It just doesn't happen it absolutely doesn't make any sense but so often a person really can love their money more than their own soul in verse 24 it says that the disciples were astonished at his words but jesus answered again and said to them children how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God." Now Jesus looks at this guy, these guys, right? It's not hard for him to see that he has just blown their minds yet again. So he follows it up with this very vivid picture, this whole camel and this needle because he's really trying to drive this point home. Now, Some people have tried to kind of soften the picture here that Jesus was using. And you may, maybe you've heard it in a sermon or maybe you read in a book that, you know, he's not really talking about the eye of a needle, like, you know, a needle and thread, kind of a sewing needle. But, you know, they say that there was a small gate in the walls of the city of Jerusalem and they call it the eye of the needle gate. And they'll show you this picture right here. And they would say that that gate would only be open at night when all the main gates of the city were closed. And, you know, as people arrived to the city of Jerusalem after the gates were closed and they would oftentimes come on camels. But in order to get through that gate, of course, it was a challenge. So what they would have to do is they'd have to strip the camel down, right? Take off everything that the camel was carrying, take off all the burdens. And then if the camel got down on its knees, then the camel could kind of you know, kind of wiggle its way through the gate so that they end up saying that, you know, if you just, you have to strip yourself down and if you do that, you can wiggle your way into the kingdom. Now, aside from the fact that it's debatable based on archaeology and based on history whether this needle gate ever actually existed, because it certainly didn't exist when they were able to take a picture of it, by the way, but whether it actually ever existed, the bigger problem with this explanation is that we don't wiggle our way into the kingdom of God. That is hardly what Jesus could possibly have been trying to communicate here. Jesus was talking about a real camel, he was talking about a real needle, and Jesus was telling us that this is impossible. Right? The illustration makes it clear that it's an impossibility for those who trust in riches to ever enter into the kingdom why because trust in riches robs us of trust in God and the gospel of Jesus is all about trust it's all about faith it's all about us coming to him in our desperation and our brokenness and our poverty and trusting in him for our salvation and then walking with him once we're saved in the very same way Walking with him in this moment by moment kind of a dependence on him where we're focused on him and where we're seeking after him for our daily needs. You guys know that it's true just like I know it's true. There is nothing that improves our prayer life like when the balance in the bank account gets a little bit low. And suddenly we are focused on God and we are conscious of God in an entirely new way than we had been before that. At least until the next payday. And then we go back to trusting in what? The bank balance. Instead of living and instead of walking by faith in him. So the camel and the needle picture was meant to be startling. It was meant to be shocking. And it was. Because look at how the disciples respond next. In verse 26 it says that they were greatly astonished. Saying among themselves, who then can be saved? Notice you guys... In verse 24, they were regular astonished. By the time we get here to verse 26, they are greatly astonished. Now understand, as we've said of the disciples, these guys by and large were just a product of their upbringing. They were a product of the Jewish culture of their time. And what the rabbis effectively taught was that your wealth was a direct sign. It was in correlation with God's blessing on your life. It was basically their version of the prosperity doctrine, just like we have a prosperity doctrine even in the church today. And it was, and it still is, based in a way on the Old Testament law. Because under the law of Moses, God did promise blessing to those who obeyed him. So what the rabbis kind of did is they twisted this all around, and they said, look, if you're rich... God must like you a lot. And God must like you just a little bit better than he likes those other people who are poor. And this was really a convenient teaching because most of the religious leaders of that day were filthy rich. So the conclusion that they're drawing, right, kind of the logical outworking of their thought was that of course rich people are going to heaven. Look at the way God is manifesting his great favor on them even now. Look at how rich they are. And again, the problem isn't with riches. The problem is not when we possess possessions, but the problem is what? When our possessions possess us, right? The problem is when we put our focus on the gift and we take our focus off of the giver, when it's so much of our security and our identity and all of these different things really start to get wrapped up in that. That's the peril of riches. And it's just a symptom of our stinking fallen nature, right? It's the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and it's the pride of life, all wrapped up in our wealth and our insatiable desire to always have more of it. And so strong is that pull, that Jesus is very clear that it is a real obstacle for a person who is rich to become a Christian. Now we're talking like camel through the eye of a needle kind of an obstacle. But it says in verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, with men, it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. And we think, phew, thank you, Jesus, right? There is a way. Now, I once heard it said, and I think it was said so well, you can get a camel through the eye of a needle, You just have to grind him up really, really small, right? But isn't that what God does, right? Isn't that exactly what God specializes in in each one of our lives, right? In spite of the peril of these riches, there's always the possibility of God, right? Now, you might be sitting here this morning, and you may be a rich person. And if you are, don't raise your hand, please, you know. The truth is that all of us in this room are wildly rich by the world's standards, right? But even for those who are truly rich in a monetary sense beyond our standards, Jesus is saying in this passage things about people in your positions that he didn't say to everybody else. He is giving warnings about you that he doesn't give to anyone else, so it's important to listen. There are challenges that rich people, fake, you face unique challenges to, that come in, uh, that get in the way of you being saved because of what riches do to you and because of the power that riches can have over a human life. And again, verse 27, aren't we thankful that nobody's beyond help? Right? God can grind up even the biggest camels and get them through the eye of that little needle. And sometimes we look and we say, you know, a a wealthy, famous person gets saved. And we say, wow, it's a miracle that person got saved. I mean, the truth is, it's a miracle that anybody gets saved. Every person that gets saved, it's a miracle. But there is a sense which Jesus is saying here, that it actually is a special kind of miracle when a person who's rich gets saved. He's saying that there is a way even of dealing with the rich to bring them to that place where their their riches are no longer what they're trusting in and thereby they can enter into the kingdom of God. And we know for a fact, right? Wealthy people do, extremely wealthy people do enter into the kingdom of God. So how does it happen? Well, if you're rich, pay attention, right? Based on what Jesus says here, it happens when their wealth Isn't their savior, but it's their servant. And they use that wealth really to glorify God. I could point out a number of people sitting in this room right now this morning who are very well off. And of every one of them, I will tell you they are extremely kingdom minded. They are so very kingdom-minded with their wealth. They make stuff happen in our ministry. They make stuff happen all over the world. And each of them are such beautiful examples of what happens when God gets a hold of a heart like that. The way that God can shape the priorities of a heart that's submitted to him. And the way that he can order the priorities in their lives. And let me say this clearly. God is not against wealth. God is not against money. God is not against us having money. What God's against is when money becomes our identity and when money becomes that master passion of our lives. There's nothing inherently wrong with money, although we have all heard people who will misquote the Bible as they bash on money, especially right in this current cultural moment when we're in where there's this attack on capitalism with this push towards socialism, but very often you'll hear people misquote what the Bible says, and what do they say? They say, well, you know, the Bible says money is the root of all evil. And that would be great, but it's not what the Bible says. What does the Bible say? In 1 Timothy 6, it says that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil that some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And of course, we can all think of all kinds of truly evil things that are driven by a lust for money. Right? The obvious one, the drug trade, sex trafficking, businesses, manufacturing that oppress people and harm people in order to make more money. But that's not the fault of the money, right? It's the fault of the people who are lusting for it because wealth represents power, wealth represents opportunity. But understand that very same wealth and that very same power can be used in a kingdom sense to create kingdom opportunity when we look at it from the perspective of heaven. You know, if you kind of back up and you read the verses that come just before the one we just read, it's in 1st Timothy that Paul really gives us what should be our whole perspective on money. It says that he says that godliness with contentment is great gain. He says we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it, but if we have food and clothing we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, et cetera, et cetera. So Paul's talking about this inordinate desire to be rich, this compelling, controlling desire to be rich, which really, when you think about it, is nothing less than a form of slavery to your riches. He's talking about a person who loves money because they believe that through that money, they're going to live in opulence and in pleasure and in excess. He is not talking about the person who looks at their money and they understand that what they have has been entrusted to them by God and should be directed by God because he wants to use that money to bless people, right, to see the kingdom of God expanded, right? This is the heart of heaven. So much so, look what Paul Paul finishes that whole discussion about money with these very clear and compelling words, and he's speaking directly to wealthy people. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. And in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now here, this is important because in what Paul just said, Paul is acknowledging in this exhortation that there were some of the early Christians to whom he was writing who were very rich. And notice, he doesn't condemn them for it, but what he does is he commands them not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in those uncertain things, but to put their hope where it belongs, in the God who richly provides for us and gives us everything that we need. So, can Christians be rich? Yes, absolutely. But we're not to boast in it or trust in it, but we're to trust in the Lord because that's where we find life. And I think that that statement there, look at the end of that verse again, that, st- that sentiment of taking hold of the life that is truly life. Right? Some translations say take hold of the life that is real or that they will know what true life is like or that they will keep their hold on the life that is real. And I think certainly it speaks of life eternally, but I think just as well it speaks of life presently. And in the the next thing that Jesus Jesus says, his final words on this passage, he's going to bring that very principle out. Right now, he's about to answer our good friend Peter. Look what Peter is quick to point out, verse 28. It says, then Peter began to say to him, see, we have left all and followed you. Now, the good news here is at least we know that Peter's tracking with Jesus. He's like 100% on this message. Right? And Peter's thinking, whoa, wait a minute. The thing that Jesus just said that this rich young ruler should do that he isn't willing to do, we've already done. Right? Like props to us. Where's the pat on the back, Jesus? Peter is never going to miss a moment, like, you know, without at least piping up about it. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake and the gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. So this isn't simply about eternal life eternally. This is about abundant life presently. It was John chapter 10, one of my favorite verses, John 10, 10. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it, what? More abundantly. So that's life eternally and life here and now abundantly. And that life only comes as we learn to let go of those things that keep us tethered to this world and this life, including our wealth. But what we gain, Jesus says that what we gain in exchange for that, even now, presently, during our time here on this earth, it is so much than we would ever give up, right? This is true kingdom riches eternally and presently. Some of you are familiar, there's a missionary named Jim Elliot, and he was martyred for his faith in 1956. He was actually murdered by a tribe a very remote people who lived in eastern Ecuador, and he and his team were trying to bring the gospel to them. And prior to that, he had written in his journal seven years earlier in kind of a a very prophetic way, he wrote this. He said that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And, of course, we look back now in light of his martyrdom, and we understand it in the context of his death, but it's true actually in reality for our lives. Because Jesus is very clear here. Again, look in verse 30. It's not just that we only gain in the age to come, but he's very clearly, he says, that we shall receive a hundredfold now in this time. Right? And this kind of thing is going on all over the world today, where there are places where people do have to give up everything to follow after Jesus. And if it's not everything, sometimes it's very significant parts of their life and significant relationships that they have to give up to do it. But he said, now in this time, right, in this life, you'll have houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions because what happens is that when we are born again and we become a part of the kingdom of God, whatever we might lose materially as a result or lose in terms of relationships because of that, Jesus says we're going to gain so much more to replace it because what we gain is we gain everything that belongs to everyone who is part of the body of Christ. We gain a number, we gain multiple mothers and brothers and sisters and fathers. We gain all of these other people who are around us as family to speak into our lives and who commit themselves to helping us and to sharing with us what they have when we lack as we come in and we're now part of that family. And I think that verse 30 here is a really convicting verse for us as Christians, and especially as Western Christians, and even more so as American Christians, because here in the West, nowhere more so than in the United States, we are very, very independent people. We don't play well with others. We don't really live and function in community like so many other cultures in the world do. And for the most part, because we've been born and raised in a nation that, that was at least founded on this Judeo-Christian ethic, the truth is we haven't yet faced any kind of a great persecution for our faith. Right? In the sense that it really costs us relationships where people are shunned and put out of families because they confessed Christ or it costs us our wealth or our entire livelihood because other people in the community refuse to do business with the Christians, right? Our wealth isn't just confiscated. Well, no, no, our wealth is not confiscated. (laughs) But in other parts of the world, this happens. And yet the truth is because it doesn't happen here, because it's not part of our experience, we don't take seriously and we really don't treasure this community that we have in the body of Christ. And so I'm exhorting all of us here this morning, myself included, this is how the body of Christ is supposed to be operating, especially in relationship to those who it did cost them something to become Christians. The people who sincerely have left all to become a Christian, that we as the body of Christ have this responsibility, really this privilege to make space for them to be in relationship with them within our life and sharing whatever wealth we do have to make sure that all of their needs are provided for. So that they can be assured of food and shelter and clothing and community and support and belonging. And this is all part of this wonderful kingdom vision that Jesus is building into the minds of the disciples. This vision of the good life and this vision of the kingdom life. This vision that we talked about last week that we need to be building into our kids. But first, we need to build it in to the adults. Amen? Here's Jesus, he is bragging this up about the body of Christ, but what it means is that it ought to really characterize the body of Christ. Right? And so I think we who are here in the, the church with a capital C, right? I think our church is very loving, I think our church is very embracing, but I think that we as a church on the whole in the West, we have a ways to go. We have a ways to grow in all of this. And no doubt, I think we're already starting to see this happen, where more and more, even in America, Christians increasingly are becoming the enemy of culture. And so we're sort of being forced to band together a little more and to find some more fellowship and some camaraderie within the church family. And now watch Jesus conclude. He says, not only do you get all of that in this life, And in the age to come, you get everlasting life. But then he closes with this final kingdom reality. It's yet another one of these paradoxical statements. He says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And of course, Jesus, again, referring to the rich young ruler here who was first in this life. But without doing the things that Jesus told him he needed to do, he's going to end up last in the life to come. And it's easy for us. We can look around in this life and we can see people who we think are the least, but they're Christians, which means they're actually the first. They are first even here and now as God looks down from his perspective on his throne in heaven. These people are first from a kingdom perspective. And they will surely be first at that final moment of death as they head into eternity. Understand, folks, nothing is clear this side of eternity with respect to all this stuff. But rest assured, it will be instantaneously, absolutely, and abundantly clear right at the moment of death. We will know in an instant who is truly rich and who was truly poor in the life of eternity, and in the eyes of God. And we continue to see, don't we, through these chapters, that the kingdom of Jesus is not at all like any kingdom that we could even contemplate or conceive of on this earth. right? In any way, shape, or form. It is very much, it is a kingdom of true paradoxes. Right. Just think about the last few passages we've seen. It's a kingdom where two shall be as one, right? The way that God originally intended in marriage. A kingdom where the greatest shall serve the least. A kingdom where the least shall be the greatest. A kingdom where children are the example for adults, right? In how we're to receive the kingdom as a gift. And now we're told that it's a kingdom where the first shall be last, And in the balance of our chapter, and I can tell you this this week because you won't remember it next week. But in the balance of the chapter, we're going to see that the servants shall be as rulers and the poor will be rich. Remember back in chapter 8, Jesus already told us that whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loves their life for his sake will, or loses his life, pardon me, for his sake will find it. Paul says to the Corinthians that when I'm weak, I am strong. And then Paul highlights, I want to read this whole thing. He highlights all of this as he writes to them. He says, we are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. So this is the true upside-downness of the kingdom. This is the upside-downness that we are called to be part of and to really live in. This is the vision that we need to cling to and that we need to rest upon and that we need to walk in every day by faith. Right, we need to trust that these Paradoxes, all of these beautiful paradoxes about the reality of this beautiful one of a kind kingdom, we can trust that they are as sure and as solid as our very salvation itself. Because it's only then when we do that that's when we really start to discover the true kingdom riches that we have. That's when we really start to discover just how really. Stinking rich we really are in all of these things. And not just in eternity to come, but even here, even now in this present age. Amen? Amen. Amen. So Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And we thank you, Lord, as challenging as it can be. Lord, we thank you for the encouragement. Lord, we do pray that, that if there are any rich young rulers amongst us here in the room this morning, Lord, we pray that, the, that your word would sink deeply into our hearts and find good soil, Lord, that we wouldn't simply walk away sorrowful for we had many possessions, Lord, but we would really take to heart the things that you speak to our heart. And Lord, that we would uh, turn to you. Lord, may there be nothing that's an obstacle for us in following after you. We pray that you'd help us search our hearts, we pray, Lord, as we worship. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand up and let's uh, worship the Lord one more time together.